Definitively Speaking is a definitive healthcare podcast series recorded and produced in Framingham, Massachusetts. To learn more about healthcare commercial intelligence, please visit us at definitivehc.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Definitively Speaking, the podcast where we have data-driven conversations on the current state of healthcare. I'm Justin Steinman, Chief Marketing Officer at Definitive Healthcare and your host for this podcast. As you might know, March is Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. Don't go anywhere. I know we're in April right now. But a couple of scheduling snafus prevented us from getting this podcast into March. But this topic was just too important to ignore. So in very belated honor of Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month, today we're going to talk about your stomach. Well, actually, your stomach and the stomachs of the more than 100 million Americans who received care for gastrointestinal-related issue in 2022. GI is a hugely important topic, and there's a lot of complexity involved in correctly diagnosing and treating it. And it costs the U.S. healthcare system just a ton of money. By some estimates, more than $140 billion each year in direct costs, which is more than heart disease, mental health, or trauma. And yet, for some reason, or maybe we know the reason, we don't talk about GI nearly as much as we talk about all those other topics. And to help us understand why, and to talk about the massive changes happening in GI care delivery, I'm joined today by Dr. Samir Barry, the Chief Medical Officer at Oshi Health. Oshi Health is a virtual multidisciplinary GI company, and the front page of their website has a great grab you line, find lasting digestive relief. And after they hook you with that tagline, you'll learn like I did, that Oshi Health is a virtual first gastrointestinal care clinic that integrates evidence-based medical care and behavioral health support into a convenient, high-touch, data-driven care model. Not only is Dr. Barry the chief medical officer at Oshi Health, he's also a practicing gastroenterologist, so he is one busy guy. Which makes me all the more appreciative that he's taken the time to join me today here on Definitively Speaking. So Dr. Barry, welcome to Definitively Speaking. Thanks, Justin, and thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, I know March was Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month, but April is actually IBS Awareness Month. So we still have two back-to-back GI condition months. And so the scheduling snafu actually works both ways. We're still we're still okay in terms of the months for GI. I love that. Thank you for making me feel better about that. Uh, and thank you for making people's stomachs feel better in the middle of this IBS month. So before we get going, I want to take a moment and welcome a new voice to our show here. In addition to Samir, I'm joined by Catherine Wright, Senior Director of Product Management here at Definitive Healthcare. Catherine's been here at DH since the company's very early days, and she has got a ton of experience in the healthcare industry. So, Catherine, welcome to your very first episode of Definitively Speaking. Thank you. I'm so honored to be here, and great to meet you, Samir. Thanks for joining us. Samir, we are so happy to finally get you on the show today. Not to hit you with a hard question right off the bat, but I'm wondering why GI care is so stigmatized. I rattled off some scary stats there in the beginning, but no one ever seems to talk about GI care out loud. Why? Yeah, that's actually one of the things that got me interested in the field, right, as a medical student. And it actually goes all the way back to my childhood. My father was a gastroenterologist. And back in the day, you know, my mother was working. She'd travel a lot for work. My dad would actually take me to the hospital with him on rounds. You know, back in the day, there weren't that many rules about those kinds of things. And I, I remember sitting in at the nurse's station 
hearing him ask patients about, you know, poop and gas and nausea and bloating and, you know, things that would just make any child giggle. Right. And, but I could hear the sense of suffering. Right. And so even as a child, I heard these really kind of funny words, funny symptoms, but in a very somber tone. Right. And I could hear the patient suffering as well. And from a young age that really impressed upon me that, you know, there's this whole field that nobody talks about. No one likes to talk about, you know, whether their butts itching or whether they have poop issues, you know, as a, as a young kid, but this can really bother people. It can be really, really, you know, uh, impactful on patients' lives. And so from a young age, I was kind of drawn to the fact that being a gastroenterologist allows you to have conversations with people that they wouldn't even have with their spouse, right? That they wouldn't talk to anyone about. These are really, really sensitive condition areas, right? They're really sensitive physical exams. And most of the time you can't look at someone and tell by looking at them that they have a GI condition. Right. And so there's a lot of hidden patient suffering that attracted me to this specialty because I wanted to help those patients. And the stigma around it is really due to the fact that we haven't done a good job of treating these conditions and giving patients the interventions that they need to feel better. You're seeing an increasing prevalence of these types of conditions and the stigma is there. And I think, unfortunately, the stigma actually creates more suffering more suffering than most people realize. Some of the staggering statistics, you know, it is April's IBS Awareness Month. Patients with irritable bowel syndrome actually report worse quality of life scores than patients that are on dialysis. And so there's a tremendous amount of suffering that's here in this patient population. They've been told, unfortunately, by many clinicians that these symptoms are all in their head. And it's, it's largely due to the fact that we've just done a bad job of treating the condition and we've done a bad job of explaining to patients and other clinicians what the root causes are, right? Dysregulated gut-brain signaling, things that we can get into in this podcast. Um, but that's what drives a lot of the stigma, unfortunately. So how do we reduce it? <laughs> I think we need to have, it's changing. That's one, I think, one of the most exciting things about GI. I think GI today is at a place where mental health conditions were about 10 years ago, right? 10 years ago, nobody would talk about their mental health conditions. Today, you have celebrities talking about them. Um, you, you know, it's very open in the workplace to be able to say, hey, I need a mental health day. Um, unfortunately, it's not very open to say, you know, hey, I need an office that's closer to the bathroom because I have uncontrolled IBS. Or, you know, I had a really bad night last night. You know, my Crohn's disease was really, you know, kind of really bothering me. Can I work from home today? Those conversations are a lot more difficult to have, but they're changing because we're doing a much better job of explaining the impact of these conditions across the country. The other thing is that money talks. And we're starting to really realize that the true impact of these conditions financially is absolutely staggering. And so employers and health plans are really starting to hone in and focus on, you know, what's going on with digestive conditions as they start to see it creep higher and higher and higher on their list of priorities. Lastly, I think patients are doing a much better job of advocating for themselves, right? You know, unlike other condition areas like diabetes, hypertension, you know, high cholesterol, you don't feel those conditions every day. Patients suffering from GI conditions feel their symptoms every single day. And so the fact that they're able to better advocate for themselves is also changing the landscape. Yeah, it's kind of weird. So I think like I have 13-year-old twins and, you know, 13-year-old boy twins, as you might imagine, they love a good poop joke or 20. And, you know, if someone were to come to one of their friends and be like, you know, I'm really upset, something bad happened or a mental health issue, I hope and pray they'd be sympathetic enough to offer their condolences. How can I help you? 
But I guarantee if one of their friends came and said, I had diarrhea last night, there would be 20,000, you know, diarrhea jokes that happened over the next 20 minutes. It's just something about the way we react to this topic versus a mental health condition. You know, I do think we're seeing a, a growing trend on social media with people being more open about things like IBS and what people are going through. Is that something that you've experienced? Have you seen a more generational difference in in who you're treating and how they're coming to you with their symptoms? A hundred percent. And unfortunately, that's actually a double edged sword. Right. And so while we do see the rising prevalence of conditions like inflammatory bowel disease, irritable bowel syndrome, creating more of an opportunity for us to advocate for those conditions, it's also unfortunately given an opportunity for naysayers in the market to push a lot of snake oil and quick fixes and cures. Um, and with the advent of social media, you know, this gets disseminated far more easily. It's like a wildfire. And so, you know, if you look at actually the hashtag gut talk on TikTok. There are millions of videos, you know, purported by untrained individuals saying, you know, I did this celery juice cleanse and it totally cured all of my symptoms. And again, because these patients are suffering, because we're not giving them the tools they need to treat their conditions, patients are grasping for straws. And so it can be a double-edged sword, the advocacy component. And this whole mental health versus gut health thing is really intriguing to me as we sit here and talk about it, right? Like if you came to me and said you were depressed, I wouldn't presume to try to counsel you. But if you came to me and said your stomach's upset, I'd be like, take a couple Tums or I'm an expert, you know, be with my exactly zero hours of medical school. I got all sorts of things to tell you to make your stomach feel better. But it's just so interesting. People kind of, I guess maybe everybody poops so they feel that way. But it's kind of an interesting conundrum, don't you think? It, it is really interesting. You know, whenever I'm in the a drugstore or a grocery store, I always kind of meander to the GI aisle to get a sense of, you know, what are my patients looking at when I when I tell them to go to the drugstore and pick up a drug, right? Or what are they looking at before they come to me? And it is so overwhelming. There is microbiome pills and probiotics that are purporting certain things. There's you know, various iterations of acid blocking medications. And so I totally, you know, get what you're saying. A lot of people just kind of jump towards that Tums or the medication, again, because we haven't done a good job of understanding, well, what is the impact of lifestyle, of stress, of diet, uh, the gut-brain access? We're just starting to learn about these things, and it's a really exciting time to be in the field because I think we're right on the cusp of a complete transformation in how we care for these kinds of conditions um, from, from a medical perspective, as well as the advocacy components that we just talked about. So talk to me about that transformation. What does that mean? Yeah, I think one of the biggest transformations, of course, is in the delivery of GI care, right? And this is actually the question that led me to start Oshi Health along with the, my other co-founders there. You know, I remember training in a GI clinic and seeing patients all day, you know, having 12 or 13 patients on the schedule, really sick patients. And I had patients who didn't need to see me at all, you know, who had really simple concerns, who could somehow get in, you know, within a couple of weeks. And I had other patients who really needed to see me almost weekly, but couldn't get in for months, right? Either because of insurance issues or travel issues or work issues. Um, I had patients who couldn't get their medications. I had patients who couldn't see a dietitian or a psychologist, even though I knew that's actually what they needed. And a colleague of mine, you know, we were sitting in, in the doctor's room late at night, finishing up our notes. Um, and she was on the phone with an insurance company trying to get an endoscopy schedule. And we just sat and stared at each other after she got off the phone thinking about, you know, could you design a system that could make it more impossible for us to do our jobs? I, I don't think you could, right? We just sat there banging our head on the wall. You know, we have all this training. 
we know exactly what these patients need. In many cases, it's cheaper to give them what they need than what we can order, but the system only lets us orders CT scans, MRIs, colonoscopies, endoscopies. We can order that with a click of a button. But if I want to see my patient once a week, that's almost impossible. And so the GI system today, healthcare in general, but subspecialty care for complex conditions like gastroenterology, like hepatology, is designed around episodic appointments and procedures. But appointments and procedures are not what get people feeling better, right? Those are are a component, but they're not what's proven to really heal people. And so, you know, that's when things really changed for me at a personal level, you know, where I really said, okay, I want to start working on these system issues. I want to start working on these challenges to Justin's point, you know, what's this transformation. And I tried in all, in all different ways, you know, within the traditional system of healthcare, right? I sat on hospital committees, published paper papers, spoke at conferences, you know, I've worked in academic centers, the VA hospital, private practice, um, worked in public policy with Governor Dukakis in Massachusetts, you know, looking at ways that we could look at changing health policies. And the one thing I learned from all of that was that the current system is just flawed to its core. And we really just need to scrap that entire thing, throw it away and start from scratch. And that's what led to, you know, four years later, now delivering that type of care at Oshi Health, where we've designed a new system from the ground up that includes the right, you know, IT infrastructure, the right technology, the right reimbursement model, uh, the right clinician incentives, the right clinical workflows. Um, what's the right clinical model? What's the right cadence to see patients every you know few few weeks? What's the right way for patients to be able to message with us? Designing all of that from the ground up is what I came to believe was the only way to avoid another late night in the hospital where I was banging my head against the wall thinking, why can't I just get the patients what I know they need? And so you know that's a long way of answering your question, Justin, about these transformations. But the reason I gave that story is because when most people think about transforming a field of medicine, they think about a revolutionary new surgery or a revolutionary new medication. And while we need more of that in GI, and we should continue to do that type of um, innovation, what we really need is changing the care delivery model. Because today, that, that is really the core of what's wrong. And that's really what I've dedicated my life's work to now. One of the things that really struck me about Oshi Health is how you focus on the interdisciplinary nature of it. And specifically looking at, you know, you think GI is really focused in one area, um, but I think what really comes through through um, your site and your care is you need to talk to a nutritionist. Do you need to talk to someone that can help you with your mental health? So could you tell us a little bit about why it's so in, important that this is interdisciplinary and and how does that kind of complicate um, the, the care and, and and what is OSHI working to do to, to try to streamline that for patients? Yeah, Catherine, that's such a great question, especially the part about how does that complicate the care, right? Because it's one thing to know that multidisciplinary care is the way to improve outcomes in GI, scaling that care from an operational perspective has a lot of unique challenges. And that's part of the reason why we haven't seen it happen until now, right? We've known for decades through research studies that multidisciplinary care, where you give the patient more than just the physician, improves outcomes, reduces cost, and improves patient experience. This has been shown time and time again across various GI condition areas. So we've seen it in inflammatory bowel disease. We've seen it in refractory 
uh, disorders of gut-brain interaction. We've seen it in undiagnosed conditions, reflux. The problem is scaling access to that type of care has been very challenging, um, not only because it's not been traditionally covered by insurance, but if you think about traditional brick-and-mortar GI care, it's just not set up for a patient to have the number of touch points they need to work well with a multidisciplinary care team. And so I don't think anybody who's listening to this podcast would need convincing that multidisciplinary care is superior, right? If, if you take a patient and you give them access to a dietitian, a psychologist, a health coach, a care coordinator, a social worker, that's obviously going to be a better experience than if they're only seeing the physician. And it's not only a better experience for the patient, it's a way better experience for the physician. Because back to my story, without that model, the physician is playing the role of all of those care delivery team members, right? They're training and teaching the patient about diet and teaching the patient about stress and calling the insurance company and trying to help them with behavior change, right? And that's what drives burnout. That's what's made it so difficult to be operating a GI practice today. You know, we looked at OSHI, we looked at all this evidence that had been done. There's even actually RCTs, so prospective gold standard level evidence showing that multidisciplinary care is superior. We looked at all this evidence and we thought, well, the challenge in scaling this type of care delivery is that it's been relying on in-person care delivery workflows. And going to see your team, your clinical team, every one or two weeks is really challenging to do in person. And so we thought we have all this evidence that multidisciplinary care works. Let's digitize it, put it into a virtual first format, which allows the patient to contact us, you know, once a week and quickly iterate on their care plan and feel better. And it allows GI practices to actually deliver this type of care because they're not set up to see patients every one or two weeks. So doing that component digitally works really, really well. Interesting. I want to come back to something you said a few minutes ago, which is the healthcare system is flawed to its core. I wrote that down here in my little notes as you're talking. And I would say you're the latest in a line of frustrated doctors, if you will, who've joined us here on Definitively Speaking. Uh, you're at least the fourth frustrated doctor. You may be even more than that. We're fortunate to have a lot of chief medical officers on here. But, you know, what you were talking about really rang a bell because a few episodes back, we had Dr. Andrew Norton, the chief medical officer at Onco Health, on the podcast. And Andrew and I discussed what he was called the perverse incentives of oncology care. The fact that many oncologists are paid based on a percentage of the cost of the drugs they prescribe. So an oncologist is perversely incented to prescribe a more expensive chemotherapy drug because he or she will make more money. At the same time, there was sitting here talking about taking money and waste out of the healthcare system. And he was talking about how the healthcare system is flawed. Now, you've talked about it as flawed. Do you see perverse incentives existing in GI care as well? 100%. And it's, it's, it's unfortunate. But I think if we take a step back, GI practices are completely overwhelmed today, right? The average age of a gastroenterologist is approaching 60. And GI doctors are completely overwhelmed largely because of the rising prevalence of GI conditions also because we've reduced the screening age for colorectal cancer from 50 to 45. So there's tremendous more you know, need for colorectal cancer screening and colonoscopy. And GI, because of the rising cost, right? We talked about the direct costs associated with GI approaching $140 billion a year. That's more than we spend on mental health. It's more than we spend on heart disease. It's more than we spend on trauma. And so health plans start to look at that high cost and they apply very blunt instruments to reduce that cost. 
which are unfair when it comes to thinking about this from a clinician's point of view. So what are those blunt instruments, right? Blanket downward pressure on procedural reimbursement, right? So we've seen about 20% cut in um, GI CPT codes over the last 10 years. United Healthcare just announced nationwide blanket prior authorization on all endoscopy. So what does that lead GI practices to do? It, it, it decouples the reimbursement incentive from value for the patient. And it creates a lot of administrative focus on zero-sum competition, shifting costs from the hospital to the GI practice to the ASC, and just studying the coding system to try to game the system. There are a lot of perverse incentives in GI, and that's not unique to GI. That exists across the healthcare system, right? Like I mentioned earlier, I can order a procedure, a high-cost procedure, within one or two minutes. For me to get a patient to see a dietitian or a psychologist or a health coach would require phone calls, letters to the insurance company, you know, a lot of extra effort and work. Um, and even what I'm reimbursed for as a gastroenterologist, right? If, if a patient comes to me and I want to spend 45 minutes really digging through their medical records, listening to their history, trying to get a sense of what's actually going on, that just doesn't pay, right? What, what pays the bills at a GI practice is more endoscopy, more infusion, more imaging. And so, you know, humans respond to those incentives and that's what ends up happening more and more, despite us knowing that that's not really what gets patients feeling better. And the more I unravel this Gordian knot, the more perverse incentives I find, the more challenges I find, the more struggles uh, on the clinician and patient side that I found. And again, that's what led us at Oshi Health to just say, you know, to help with this, let's just throw all this away, create a blank canvas and totally start from scratch because there's no way we can continue to make incremental improvements to the current system and, you know, hope that things will get better. We've been doing that for decades and seeing basically no change in the cost or outcomes or patient experience in GI. So how do the health insurance companies feel about you guys? Because it sounds like you just let, you just laid a lot of blame at the, the foot of the healthcare insurance companies. I, I don't, you know, I, I want to, you know, I, I have a lot of colleagues that work in health insurance and they're really trying their best to do the same thing that clinicians are. I think health, health insurance companies get a really bad rap. Um, and I don't want to get into that, but I think the oh, right way to move. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to take you there, but keep going. <laughs> we can, we can go there. We can go there. Um, you know, I think one of the things that we have to think about when we're starting a new system is looking at all the stakeholders in a real, in a, in a realistic way and thinking, what can we do to get this care moving forward? Too often I talk to clinicians and we get too emotional about thinking, oh, the health insurance companies are, you know, to blame for everything and to hell with them. And, you know, we should just do direct specialty care or cash pay care. It, it's just, that's not going to work. And so from day one at Oshi, we said, we can't just build around the system. We have to take the long, slow path of working with health plans, working with insurance companies to explain and demonstrate the true cost of GI care, where the opportunities for cost savings are, how there's going to be a return on investment. And, you know, one of my colleagues, actually, the metaphor that he used was really interesting. I was speaking to a GI doctor and, you know, we were talking about, well, why, why don't, why, why don't you guys just sell directly to patients? You know, patients would pay for this. Um, you know, why not just ignore the whole insurance component and just, sell it directly to patients. And he said, what you guys are doing now are just taking a machete to the rainforest and just building a whole new path that doesn't exist. 
And that's really what it feels like because we have to go to each health plan and each geography and explain to them, looking at their data, showing here's the true cost of GI care in your patient population, and here's where you can actually improve outcomes and reduce your cost by avoiding waste to, to, to have it be a win-win for patients and the health plan. And that's really, I think, a core component of what we're doing at OSHA is getting these services covered in network. But that's challenging because insurance companies don't really have a true understanding of the costs in GI. And again, that's why they go back to using those blunt instruments of, you know, let's just cut the procedure reimbursement across the board, or let's just use prior authorization across the board. That does nothing to really get patients feeling better. It just disintermediates care between clinicians and their patients. So I worked at an insurance company for four years, so I can ask this question. I ran product management, so I I, I gotcha. Why do health insurance companies get a bad rap? I, I think it goes back to that disintermediation component, right? They're seeing the cost of GI care rise precipitously year over year as the prevalence increases, as we have newer technologies that we can that we should be embracing because they can help us treat more patients. But knowing when to use those technologies is key. And I think they get a bad rap because they don't have a true understanding, again, of the costs in GI because there's a lot of coding obfuscation. So unlike other condition areas like diabetes or hypertension, you know, where you can measure a number and diagnose someone, this person has hypertension, this person does not, you know, diabetes, you can prick someone's finger and get a direct reading as to how they're doing. You really can't do that in GI, right? There, these are really vague symptoms. There's no, you know, definitive diagnosis. There's a lot of overlap of symptoms, a patient with irritable bowel syndrome, a patient with Crohn's disease and a patient with lactose intolerance can all have the same symptoms. So, you know, even if you look at it from a symptom perspective, there's a lot of variation. And so, well, why is that important to the insurance company? The reason is, is because the way insurance companies measure costs associated with certain conditions is they do claims analyses. And when you look at claims in GI, you do not get an accurate picture of what's really going on. And so insurance companies have no idea how to have optimal resource allocation when you're looking at claims. That's what makes it really, really challenging. And then I think that's what leads them to have a bad reputation when it comes to practicing gastroenterologists. But at OSHI, we're changing that. Interesting. I'm glad you brought up claims, right? And it's back to the fact that you just said that claims aren't an accurate way of measuring. And I actually did some research before this and pulled some data because we like to be data-driven here on Definitively Speaking. You know, so one estimate that I saw found that there are roughly 311 million claims filed in the U.S. in 2022 across both commercial insurance and Medicare that included a GI diagnosis code. Those claims covered roughly 100 million patients, almost three claims for every single patient, right? And then according to data that I pulled from our data set, you know, we saw the number of GI medical claims in the U.S. grew roughly 13% from 2020 to 2022. So, A, how do you feel about that three claims per one patient ratio? And B, why did claims for GI grow 13% over a two-year period? What's, what's driving all that? So, the number of claims increasing in GI really is related to, A, the prevalence of these conditions increasing, right? Especially with the, um, as we get out of this pandemic, a lot of these conditions are driven by gut-brain dysregulation. And the more gut-brain dysregulation there is, the more patients are gonna be suffering from disorders of gut-brain interaction, which increases the prevalence of these codes. The other issue is a lot of practices have resorted to driving volume 
to achieve revenue because of the downward pressure on their margins and because of the downward pressure on reimbursement, practices are starting to focus on driving volume. And so you're starting to see more and more claims arise as practices adapt to a more challenging, a more challenging landscape in healthcare, right? There's more hospital consolidation. There's more payer consolidation. Um, GI particularly has been the target of more private equity roll-ups as well. So all of these macroeconomic forces combined, again, are leading to changing practice patterns in GI, where you're going to start to see, you know, more zero-sum competition, more upcoding, and more newer tactics to drive to drive revenue as it becomes more challenging to operate these types of practices. So knowing that OSHI is looking to do things a little bit differently, could you share with us some of the outcomes that you've seen, you know, knowing you're just four years into the journey, but you know, what, what wins and successes have you, have you experienced? Right. I mean, I think the biggest wins that we've experienced to date are our insurance contracts. And so getting these services covered, and when I say these services, getting multidisciplinary care covered by insurance has been a huge win. Today, 20 million people um, across the country have access to OSHI services as an in-network covered benefit by their insurance company. You know, four years ago, almost no one had access to those services as a covered benefit, right? And so today patients can sign up at OSHI and get access to a dietitian, psychologist, social worker, health coach, care coordinator, you know, nurse practitioner, all working together under one virtual roof, all trained in GI, all focused on getting that patient feeling better. Um, getting these services covered by insurance was a huge win for us. Um, and we're going to continue to expand those services as an in-network benefit for patients. Um, designing those contracts with health plans has also been really fascinating. You know, the vast majority of GI care today is just done fee-for-service. Um, there's almost no value-based care in GI. We've seen alternative payment models and um, you know novel payment arrangements really take off in musculoskeletal conditions, preventative care, you know even mental health, diabetes, but really nothing has been done in GI. And it, it, the only the only areas in GI to date that have had you know any kind of component of value based care, maybe 30 day bundles around colonoscopies or procedures, um, maybe some population health metrics around colon cancer screening, um, some chronic care management programs that are really just designed for revenue enhancement. But when you look at the entire spectrum of the specialty and you look at chronic conditions like inflammatory bowel disease and irritable bowel syndrome and reflux, it's all fee-for-service. And so OSHI went and designed the true first value-based contracts where you know we are at risk for a component of our fees based on hitting certain outcome measures um, that's never been done before in GI. And again, that allows us to deliver care in ways that traditional brick and mortar practices just can't do, right? I, I have a fiduciary responsibility to make sure my patients are getting better. That, in, that can incentivize and unlock care delivery that we could never do, right? We can call our patients every day. We can send them food. We can send a phlebotomist to their home if they can't get to the lab because we really want them to start feeling better. Some of the other successes and wins at OSHI that I think I'm most proud of are our prospective clinical trial results. And, you know, unfortunately, this is a, a broader topic, I think, across digital health and healthcare entrepreneurship. You're starting to see a lot of companies report certain findings or, you know, demonstrate certain findings through a white paper or through an internal, you know, flawed and biased analysis. From day one at OSHI, we really wanted to take a very evidence based approach and a very rigorous approach to clinical validation. And so, you know, we worked with a 
core team of academic gastroenterologists to design and run a prospective clinical trial looking at patients who enrolled into OSHI's virtual multidisciplinary program. And then Optum Labs actually ran a claims analysis comparing the patients who enrolled in OSHI to propensity match controls. And this was a really sophisticated match control group. You know, it was matched on demographics, GI symptoms, GI comorbidities, non GI comorbidities. Uh, these two populations were propensity score matched on prior year costs, prior year utilization, high cost medications, ER utilization. And we saw very you know, similar differences between the two groups. So this was a really apples to apples comparison. And, and what you saw at the end of the program was $7,000 in GI related savings per patient and $11,000 in all cause savings per patient after just nine months in the program. Right. And what was what was what drove these savings? Well, about a 60 a 60 percent reduction in ER visits, GI related ER visits, a 60 percent reduction in high cost GI related imaging, a 40 percent reduction in high cost medication use and even some avoided surgeries, you know, gallbladder removal surgeries and things like that. So, you know, all of this to say this drives cost savings and that's what's that's what's important to getting this covered by insurance companies. Because if we can't demonstrate that, the insurance companies are not going to cover these services. Now, what's even more important is that the studies show that we were able to do this with really high levels of patient engagement, really high levels of patient satisfaction, 90% um, symptom improvement compared to baseline, and about a 3x improvement in quality of life, workplace productivity, stress and anxiety. And, and how did we drive those, those outcomes? We saw patients every two weeks. We communicated with patients asynchronously through messaging almost every other day, and our appointment duration is 45 minutes long. And there's no incentive for our clinicians to order anything. They're incentivized to get the patient feeling better. So it's, it's really, it's not anything complicated. There's no you know, complex artificial intelligence or chat GPT or algorithms or AI or potions. There's, there's really nothing mind boggling here. It's more time with patients, the right incentives and the right clinical team working together, giving patients the care they need at the frequency that they want that gets patients feeling better. You know, you mentioned potions. I feel like I should make a Harry Potter joke here or something, but you know, I got nothing, so I'll just keep we on going. We have a going. lot of potions. A lot of potions. Excellent, lot of potions. excellent. Yeah. I was wishing to be a mad scientist pouring into titrating and missing stuff from my high school chemistry class. <laughs> right. Let's pivot to talk a little bit about the role of the patient, right? What's the patient's responsibility for his or her own GI care? Are people as diligent about their GI care as they should be? That's a great question. Uh, one of the really interesting things about GI, and this is actually something I say at almost every call with an insurance company because it helps them understand this condition area in a different way. In GI, it's the patient that's driving the utilization, the unnecessary utilization, because they're feeling their symptoms. Back to what I said earlier, patients with diabetes don't feel their symptoms, not usually, not until things get really, really bad. Patients with high blood pressure, high cholesterol, um, you know, a lot of these condition areas, patients aren't feeling their symptoms every day. So they're not waking up in the morning you know, suffering, driving unnecessary utilization to the emergency room, you know, driving unnecessary utilization to functional medicine or trying these unproven uh, treatments. In GI, that's the case. And so we have to focus on educating the patient about their care. We have to focus on getting the patient feeling better 
as the first priority. That's what leads to trickle down benefits and reducing unnecessary cost. So what can the patient do? You know, I think these patients have been suffering long enough. And, and when patients come, when GI patients come to these types of models, they are highly motivated to work with this team. And I think it's a breath of fresh air. You know, we get feedback from patients that say, you know, this is the first time a doctor's told me this wasn't just all in my head. This is the first time somebody spent more than 15 minutes asking me about my condition area, right? Our, the average appointment time in traditional brick and mortar care for a GI visit is about 19 minutes. And, and the reason that is, that's not a knock on physicians at all. I, I work in traditional brick and mortar GI care as well. And so I suffer from these challenges just as much as my colleagues do. We haven't set our system up to help clinicians spend the time they need with their patients, right? And so GI doctors are kind of forced to bang their head against the wall in the system that doesn't work. And so I, I think, you know, patients can always do more to improve their health, but it's challenging to do alone. And so you really need a team that's that's working with you every step of the way to help you with the behavior change, help you to understand, you know, why can't you lay down after eating if you have reflux? And maybe you come home late at night from work. Maybe you end your shift at 9 p.m., you come home at 10 p.m., you eat dinner, and then you have to go to bed, right? So how can we kind of work with each patient that's so unique? Every single patient's different to help them understand and help them comply with the lifestyle changes that's really going to drive their outcomes. That's what's been the most fun part of this for me is, help, is really kind of designing a system that doesn't take a one-size-fits-all approach. Interesting. So we've asked a lot of clinical questions, but I want to ask you a business question here. So I saw you guys recently just raised uh, a new fundraise. Congratulations. Like It's like $30 million Series B, right? Thank you. Yes. Yeah. What was it like to raise money in the current capital environment? <laughs> it was challenging. Um, you know, we, we, we still have a lot to prove, um, but I think investors and the market really are starting to take note of how these novel care delivery models can really drive not only benefits to patients and clinicians, but be an excellent business to invest in, right? Um, if we can kind of reduce unnecessary cost in the system, improve the experience for physicians and patients, and and do it with attractive unit economics, you know that allows you to to do well and, and do good as well. But but this was a very challenging time to raise uh, to raise capital. Um, the markets are are very tumultuous and volatile. You know the Silicon Valley Bank and and other kind of unfortunate news in the healthcare technology space of of companies getting indicted and investigated, going bankrupt, you know, growing too fast. So those are that's really the the ecosystem right now in healthcare technology and healthcare services in particular. What I think investors noticed about Oshi was we took a very diligent approach to clinical validation, to hiring, to expansion, to what states we operate in, to what health insurance companies and employers we work with. So we have not followed the mantra of, you know, go fast and break things. That doesn't work in healthcare. You have to be really diligent and mindful every single step of the way of how you're going to approach your business. It's a highly regulated business, of course, and it's regulated on a state-by-state -state basis, which creates significant operational challenges. But when investors did their due diligence and spoke to us and the rest of the leadership team, I think it was very clear to them that we had thought through every kind of every component of what we needed to do to scale our business um, mindfully. And we didn't really have as much trouble as I think some of the other companies in the space are having in raising capital because of the approach that we've taken from day one. And that's really a testament to the leadership team. 
So obviously it is like literally life and death. So you can't go fast and break things. Uh, so what are you going to do with all your new funding? It's funny. We haven't really taken a, a celebratory approach, right? It was a couple of days of, you know, booyah, we got it. We got the money. And then, wow, we have so much work to do. Let's put our heads back down and just keep building, right? Um, I remember the day our press release, you know, went out and we had a leadership team meeting and, you know, we probably spent two minutes just saying, okay, this is great. You know, the news is out. And we went right back to, okay, what do we need to do now? How can we continue to build? How can we continue to streamline? How can we improve our clinician experience? What do our patients need that we're not offering them? Um, you know, what are the right people that we need to bring in now to get us to the next level? And how can we mindfully grow so that we don't compromise at all on our outcomes or cost savings? So, you know, that funding is really going to be used to help us um, expand into the states that we're currently in. I mentioned we're in about 20 states today. So continuing to deliver this high touch multidisciplinary care with a pretty broad clinical team um, is expensive. And so doing that the right way is also expensive. We're the only digital health company in GI that has our own in-house team of clinicians working together. We don't use any staffing agencies. And so that's what we're using the capital for, investing more in our data analytics, um, investing more in our technology infrastructure, investing more in our provider experience. So, you know, making it streamlined and easy for our clinicians to see patients on the weekend, see patients in the evenings, um, you know, not have to spend so much time documenting. And then also significant input um, investment into our back office clinical function. So how can we use more technology to automate our quality and risk management? How can we use technology to automate our utilization management? Um, how can we use technology to improve clinical decision support to our protocols that are in-house, right? Of how do we actually get patients feeling better looking at all the evidence that we've kind of brought together in GI. So it's an exciting time, but you know, it's, it's not really time to celebrate. It's more time to just kind of put our heads down and, and focus. We've talked a lot today about how unique GI is um, as you're scaling this new model and really proving it out. Are there other specialties or therapy areas where you feel like this model may work in the future? One of the most interesting components of building this model in GI is GI is a specialty that most people would imagine has a lot of in-person care need, right? You know, there's it's a highly procedural field. There are sensitive physical exams that you have to do, which cannot be done virtually. And so what OSHI's been able to prove is that this virtual first approach to complex chronic condition management can really be applied in almost any condition area, even condition areas that you would traditionally think have really heavy in-person care needs. And so, you know, we're starting to see the emergence of these virtual first approaches to care delivery um, in other complex condition areas as, as well. Um, for OSHI, I think we're going to be focused on GI. That's really our North Star. There's so much suffering there. There's so much work to do. Um, so that's really, you know, our focus for now. Well, Samir, it's been fascinating. I could talk to you for hours. We'll have to have you come back and continue on. I'm definitely going to follow the progress of OSHI Health. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. No problem, Justin. Catherine, it was a pleasure to speak to you both. Happy to come back anytime. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. And for all our listeners out there, thank you for listening to Definitively Speaking, a Definitive Healthcare podcast. Please join me next time for a conversation with Jeremy Kirsch and Stephen Wish, the founders of a company called Network Eye. 
Network Eyes put together an interesting little business where they're bringing treatment for complicated retina disease to your local retail clinic. What's interesting to me about their business model is that they're a private clinical provider who are delivering clinical services in a third-party retail store like a CVS or Walgreens. Sort of feels like a next-gen clinical delivery model, and I look forward to exploring the pros and cons of it with Jeremy and Steven. I hope you'll join us. If you like what you've heard today, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. To learn more about how healthcare commercial intelligence can support your business, please follow us on Twitter at DefinitiveHC or visit us at DefinitiveHC.com. Until next time, take care, please stay healthy, and remember, everybody poops, so it's okay to talk about it.